Welcome everyone and thanks for listening to Let's Brief It, the podcast for law students by students. My name is Faraha Joy Sakai Sangweme and I'm a law fellow at Georgetown Law University. My co-host Dejona Richardson is a third year law student at CU Boulder. In today's episode, we are going to explore women in politics and supportive international law frameworks. To learn more about this issue, our guest today is Dr. Veronica Finn Brewey, a multi-award winner and a passionate academic advocate holding six academic degrees from four continents. She has researched, taught, consulted, and presented at conferences in over 30 countries. Veronica is also the Confederation of Alberta Faculty Association's Distinguished Academic Early Career 2023 recipient, the Australian National University International Alumna of the Year 2021, President of the International Association for the Study of Forced Migration, and Co-Chair Africa Interest Group of the American Society of International Law. She has authored five books, several book chapters, and journal articles. In 2002, she also founded Africa Awareness, a student-driven initiative responsible for instituting the first and only African Studies program at the University of British Columbia. Wow, so much accomplishments. We are so proud to host you today, Dr. Veronica. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joy. I mean, I'm always amazed when I get this kind of introduction. It's kind of like, who are they talking about? Is it me? <laughs> Six degrees on four continents, we should only hope to be lucky as lost. Right? <laughs> Insane. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be a part of the amazing work that you're doing. And I'm very pleased to say I'm also a Georgetown former student. I did a semester there. So I'm happy to be reconnected with a Lawa fellow because I, I, when I was there back in 2010, I was friends with a number of Lawa fellows. Oh, that is so exciting to know. Thank you so much again. Once again, welcome to the show. To start with, could you please provide our listeners with insight into two significant life experiences that have shaped who you are today? This is a, a very big question. And when I was trying to prepare for it, so many things came to mind. But the two that actually struck out is the Liberian Civil War and coming to Canada as an immigrant or a migrant. So the war in Liberia started in 1989. And in addition to being born relatively poor, I survived three years of the Civil War and ended up in Ghana after getting on the peacekeeping vessel as a refugee to go to Ghana. And I survived another nine years, nearly 10 years, actually, of being a refugee in Ghana without my family. So I was, I went with my family to start with, but because of really difficult circumstances, my mom and my siblings had to leave and return to Liberia. So I ended up staying in Ghana by myself. And that was a remarkable experience because if I hadn't ended up in Ghana as a refugee without family, I'm not sure I would have ended up here today because it was through that experience. It's interesting, right? Because on one hand, it's a very violent experience. I was exposed to a lot of violence and abuse. 
but it's also the impetus for driving me to become more what I am today. So it was when I was in the University of Ghana, nearly finishing my studies, I entered in 1997 and graduated in 2001 from the University of Ghana. But it was 1998 when a friend told me about this program to immigrate to Canada, and I reluctantly refused. I was not interested, but he believed in me more than I believed in myself. It ended up helping me get my application to the Canadian High Commission in Accra, Ghana. And that's how I came to Canada in 2001. So coming to Canada with two suitcases and 20 US dollars after living nearly 10 years in refugee situation opened a door of opportunity to me. So I came with one degree and I added five degrees to make a total of six over a period of 17 years. So those are the two most remarkable experiences I can highlight. Wow, that is just incredible success. An African woman coming from that kind of situation and achieving that. I mean, what what drove you? I guess it's mama. I always pin it down to mama because she had a really difficult life raising eight children by herself. And then the war didn't make it better for us. But I still have very vivid memory growing up as her first girl of mama constantly telling me, don't end up like me. Don't become teenage pregnant. Go to school. Education will be the only way for us to break this generational poverty chain. So go to school, go to school, forget about boys. And I think I just constantly heard her voice in my head. And I also was just very angry that mama had to suffer so much with no male. My father wasn't around to help. And that I had to be the one to improvise, you know, help mama raise my younger siblings and become the adult during the war because mama got really, really sick. And so at a young age of 13, I had to look after her and my siblings. So I just, I think a lot of anger helped propel my motivation because I was just angry. Why do men do this to women? And why are these people fighting war? And why can't I go to school? So I guess I was just so angry and yeah. just kept on being resistant and listening to mama's voice, like not getting married, not having children and just going to school. Well, thank you so much for sharing your tenacity and your grit. This is such a powerful story that you have to share with us and, and the world. Definitely. So against that background of, of civil conflict and Garner as that first safety place or, you know, not so safe, but somehow safe, and then your transition to Canada, but your roots are still from Liberia, that was your home. So tell us about Liberia, the civil conflict and its interaction with international human rights law. Whew, that's a big one. And I'm going to try to summarize it as much as I can. But Liberia history is deep and is rich and is a lot. So, yes, my roots is in Liberia. I'm a proud daughter of Liberia. A very interesting country. Very, very interesting country. 
So prior to the arrival of formerly enslaved Black people from the United States and the Caribbean, and those that were recaptured from international waters, so they were en route to be sold as slaves, and then the Slave Act has been passed, so they were intercepted, and some of them were also brought back to Liberia. And also those who weren't really free slaves, but they had gained their emancipation based on the fact that if they went back to Liberia, they would be free. So those are the people that formally established what we have as Liberia. But before they came, after 34,087 voyages that forcibly transported at least 12.5 million children, women, and men as human cargoes to the Americas for 374 years, the Back to Africa movement began with Paul Coffey and Marcus Garvey. This was in the early 16th and 17th century. But the American Colonization Society that was founded in 1816 after the death of Coffey and Garvey, between 1920 to 1904, 14,996 former slaves were returned to Liberia. Some came from Barbados and U.S. Virgin Islands, and some were recaptured from mostly DR Congo. So Liberia is a mixture of different parts of Africa. And so the U.S. Congress gave $100,000 to American colonization to continue the Back to Africa movement. And so that's how they repatriated or returned these formerly enslaved, recaptured, emancipated Black people to come to Liberia. I don't want to go into too much detail. The history too, is too much. But fast forward to 1847 on July 26, during a constitutional convention, 12 men of the formerly enslaved background signed and adopted the Liberian Declaration of Independence from the American Colonization Society that made Liberia Africa's oldest republic. So most people would tell you Liberia wasn't colonized but I personally believe that's a facade. We were very much colonized by the Americans, not in the sense of the United States as a country coming to colonize us, but Congress provided $100,000. And all those that founded the American Colonization Society were very much instrumental and key statesmen in the U.S. It took 100 years for Liberia, the free Black slaves now, to actually grant universal suffrage to the indigenous Liberians. That was 1946, nearly 100 years. So Liberia is one of four African countries among the 50 founding members to sign the United Nations Charter on 26th of June, 1945. Liberia is the first African country to sign the 1951 Refugee Convention. Of course, most African countries started to gain their independence between 1957 and 1970. So before then, there were no countries that would be present at these UN institutions and organizations. This is just to highlight how much Africa as a continent and African countries as individual countries were very much isolated from the whole international regime of the UN. Liberia is also party to the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, Civil and Political Rights, Conventions on the Rights of the Child, to the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, 
Liberia's part to the Rome statue, which has come to bite them in a negative way. <laughs> Liberia is the birth of the Organization of African Unity. I know not many people give Liberia that glory, but yes, Liberia, along with Secretary Hala Selassie from Ethiopia and Kwame Nkrumah from Ghana, were the three main founders of the Organization of African Unity. Although there was some conflict between the Morovia group and the Casablanca group, there was a split, as always. But Liberia, that still remains the birth of OAU. And I've actually been to Sanikwele, Nima County, where OAU was birthed. Liberia is also one of 15 original countries of the economic community of the West African states. Liberia is party to the Maputo Protocol. And two more highlights. On 4th November 1960, Liberia and South Africa, Liberia and Ethiopia, brought two separate cases to the International Court of Justice against Southwest Africa regarding South Africa's violation of its obligation under the League of Nations mandate to introduce apartheid, establish military bases in South Africa, and refusing to submit reports and transmit petitions. So basically, Liberia was very instrumental to fight against apartheid from the very early stage. Again, people don't know Liberia about these things. It's never highlighted. Liberia even grants citizenship to South Africans. There are some South Africans that are well-known in Liberia today because during apartheid, Liberia opened its doors and grants citizenship and resident status to South Africans. And Liberia, as a country, we have all of our issues, but because of the way Liberia was founded by free slaves, their goal was to be a haven for the Negro. I know it's a negative word now, but that was the essence of Liberia. Anybody that is literally Black, Liberia though is open to grant citizenship and grant residence. Angie Elizabeth Brooks Randerth was the first African and the second woman ever to be elected president of the UN General Assembly. She's one of the most educated Liberians, and she did so much during her era. We haven't acknowledged her enough, and so I wanted to really take this opportunity to make sure I'm highlighting Angie Brooks' roundoff. Lastly, Liberia elected the first female president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, in 2006. So we again made history by freely, democratically electing a female president. So there's a lot more to the history of Liberia and how Liberia is engaged with international human rights regime. So we are going to provide some links that you can use on your own time to educate yourself about Liberia's rich history and its connection to the rest of the world. Wow, thank you so much. That's such a rich history of the intersection of Liberia and its relationship with international human rights conventions. And it's so interesting to see how many conventions Liberia has actually signed up to. But yet at the same time, even though it had all these amazing ideals on liberation and being a safe haven for African people, it still was a center of very gross human rights violations. And as you pointed out, many of which specifically impacted women and children. So do you have any sense on 
what the international community did in response to human rights violations in Liberia? Were there any relevant responses that you can speak of that you feel were impactful or could have been done better? Yeah, Liberia is always a bittersweet country and the war in Liberia and the violence that continued for over 170 years isn't one of those moments or events or history that I'm proud of Liberia. And I'm trying to hold back tears here because it's deeply emotional that, you know, nearly 400 years of enslavement will bring you back to Africa to repeat the same violence that you went through. And this hurts a lot. I mean, just the reality of being a war survivor in Liberia, but just how indiscriminate the impact of historical colonial violence is and why it is important for younger generation, young people, young African-American in the U.S., law students to be aware of these histories so that we stop repeating it. It is truly painful experience, heart-wrenching experience. So yes, you're right. Liberia has on one side been the haven for Black people, and on the other side has committed the worst crime against humanity. And why I don't necessarily want to blame the U.S. or England or the Portuguese for starting slavery in the first place, I don't want to blame them totally. It's also our responsibility as Africans, as Black people, to learn our history and to try not to repeat them. So I believe what we see in Liberia today has a grave connection to the trauma and the pain and the intergenerational trauma of slavery on Black people. Because when they came back, they were healed. They had so much wound because they were afraid of not being enslaved or not being dehumanized as they were in the U.S. They were trying to do everything they can to protect that little space they had created for themselves, this space called Monrovia. But they did this at the expense of the indigenous peoples they met there, who are also their family, even though connection and cultural ties have been broken for nearly 400 years. But it's still their own people. So that separation between the so-called free slaves and the local indigenous of Liberia was what has resulted in the violence we've seen in Liberia now. Charles Dinner entered the country as a rebel leader in 1989. He started a war. And by 1997, after nearly a million people displaced, including myself, by the war, and over 250,000 killed, 20,000 children being forcibly enlisted as child soldiers, thousands and thousands of young girls raped and violated, Charles Diller was elected the president of Liberia. Again, this is another very deeply emotional experience for me. Because the same person who is responsible for all these human rights, mayhem, and crime, I would say partly, 
is the same person Liberians, especially young boys, paraded the streets of Liberia saying, even though you kill my mother, even though you kill my father, I will still vote for you. Can you imagine the self-destructive aspect of an oppressed person longing for the oppressor? So Paulo Freire is absolutely right when he says the oppressed become the oppressor. This is deeply rooted in long-term trauma and violence. It breaks my heart. And I, I was at the University of Ghana at the time, and I just couldn't believe it. You know, Ghanaians were even amazed. How could these people probably vote for this person who has destroyed their country? But that's how deeply rooted the psyche and the psychology of violence is. And until Liberia began to deal with that wound of historical violence starting from the slave trade, moving forward to the war, we would never overcome. That's my belief. So some of the reaction to what has happened in Liberia is, even though Charles Taylor was elected, the war didn't stop in Liberia. There were just still instability and violence and fighting and crime. And so on the 4th of July, the American Independence Day, George Bush had to make a statement. And the only reason I believe he made a statement to react to the violence in Liberia and Charles Taylor specifically was because common everyday Liberians were so frustrated with the violence and they took dead bodies of their family members and laid them in front of the American embassy, begging America to help. But Americans previously had sent their Navy, they sent their Marines, they were docked on the sea to protect Americans and American embassy, not Liberians. Americans have evacuated. So that's how they respond. They evacuate Americans and leave Liberians that you are the one responsible for this mess that is happening in Liberia, basically. But whenever there was a violence, America will evacuate their own and leave us there to die. And so George Bush made his speech and he said, Taylor must go. I mean, he didn't have to do anything extra. That was it. He just made a statement that Charles Taylor has to go first if there will be any peace in Liberia. And the next thing we know, Charles Taylor was arrested in 2005 in Nigeria. And prior to his arrest, arrest warrant was issued by the International Court of Justice. And he was then arrested and later on ended up in The Hague, where he was tried and convicted by the Special Court of Sierra Leone. Charles Taylor has not been held for any war crimes in Liberia. There's been no war crimes set up in Liberia. It's a complicated situation because on one hand, Africans believe that only Africans are good enough for Rome Statue and International Code of Justice. But at the same time, there is no denying that there were war crimes committed in Liberia during the Civil War, and there needs to be some redress of their violence that had taken place there. So 
Charles Taylor is now in prison 50 years since 2012. He's in England. On 25th of May 2016, the UN Security Council unanimously passed Resolution 2288 to lift a 13-year embargo on Liberia because of the war. And in 2021, Prince Johnson, who was also very much like Charles Taylor, a rebel leader and now a current senator, the American placed an embargo on him. So he and his family are not allowed to travel to the U.S. There are many more other Liberians that are on the U.S. embargo list. Before I close, I, I should highlight Lima Bowie's work because she and Ellen Johnson won the Nobel Peace Prize. Lima Bowie was able to galvanize a very strong women movement to help bring the civil war to an end. So not necessarily waiting on international human rights community to respond to Liberia's civil war. She and the mass movement, Liberian women mass movement, went to Ghana during the peace accord in Accra in 2003 to intercept the meeting and literally undress themselves and said, if you don't bring the war to an end, we will stay in your presence as naked women. And in our culture, as you know, Liberian African women, a man or a son seeing his mother's nakedness is a curse. So that was what Lima Bowie and her women based their resistance and their advocacy on to help bring the civil war to an end with their Accra Accord in 2023. Thank you. So Liberia has just held elections. What has been the role of women? And is the political environment enabling women to participate in the political process? Good question. Your questions are so spot on. I really like the questions. At the same time, it is so complicated and difficult to answer, which is good because we shouldn't have simplistic responses for these kind of real life consequences or real life issues that cause human rights violation and causes people losing their lives and causes, I mean, horrible things in people's lives. So what I would say about Liberia's election and whether it's creating space for women to participate, you have to remember from 1847 to 2005, there's been no female president. So like most countries, even in the U.S., you've not elected one female president yet. So it's always very masculine. It's always very patriarchal. And even though the men have been in power and have been ruling in a way that has caused so much violence, the moment a woman shows up, then all hell breaks loose. There is no reason for such an extra eye to be open when a woman is put in power for the first time. But that's the reality. So Ellen it comes into power in Liberia where it's been a very masculine environment of leadership. And in my opinion, Ellen Johnson, like any other past male president, is not perfect. So if we're able to cut a slack for men for 160-something years, 170-plus years, 
Why is it that we can't call it slack for a woman to also now learn how this system works and how she can, you know, contribute and how she can follow whatever path or maybe create her own path of leadership. But no, she's not perfect. Yes, she comes into leadership. And guess what? The men go berserk. They hated this woman. They said all kinds of horrible things about her. And I remember I was in Liberia in 2014 at the time. And I remember somebody telling me, we're never, ever going to vote for a woman in this country again. And I just, I just shook my head. Until she became president, there has been no rape law ever in Liberia. Until she became president, nobody had left or released Liberia of his death. It was under her regime that Liberia became non-hippic highly poor and indebted countries in Africa. So she helped this country to be released of its hippic status. Until she became president, there was no special unit in the Ministry of Justice to deal with violence against women because of how prevalent rape is in Liberia. The men would not do it for the woman. And I can go on listing Ellen Johnson becoming the first to do so many things in Liberia to ensure that girls and women are protected and given the space. She also created, under her regime, she also helped to promote and increase the presence of the Women and Children Protection Service in the police station, in the National Police of Liberia. None of those were ever created before until Ellen Joseph Salif came into power. So for some reason, which is honestly unexplainable, these men just hated this woman. I'm not saying she's perfect. Trust me, I have my own qualms against the woman, you know, but give a woman her flowers where she deserves it. And this is where I will respect her for what she contributed to creating a space for women to participate. Now, she started something that had led more Liberian women to become more visible and more active in politics and in public services. So this election, after she left office, I mean, 2012, I think, the next person is uh, George Weir. And now uh, we just had our election in November. In fact, there is a runner-off election coming up between two males. But the first election that was held, I think, 8th of October, there were two female candidates. So that's something. When Ellie ran, she was the only female candidate. So that's an improvement. So there are two female candidates. They, of course, they're never going to make it to the top. So now we have two males as the runner-up. And one of them who is, I don't know, this desire and, and love for people who are 70, 80 years old to be power men. It's just, for me, it's just amazing. Why do you allow senality to take over politics when you have a bunch of young people? Liberia is noted as a young country because 60% of our population is under the age of 25. Can you believe that? And then you have an 80-year-old, 70, almost 80-year-old still running for office. I just, for the life of me, I just don't understand. If a woman was to do that, she would be criticized and she would be told to leave. But that is what is happening in Liberia. And I don't think 
after Ellen Johnson's leave, even though there has been some increase in women participation, I don't think there will be a lot more support for women until we have a leader who will value and put women leadership as a priority. Because even without Senate, I know there is one woman who won a senator position in Grand Kippon County and a few other women that are in the House of Representatives. I do have the statistics, but it's not off my head now, but relatively under the 30% that the Interparliamentary Working Group has been asking for that usually or suggested that we have at least 30% of our women represented. We still don't have that 30% in Liberia. So I feel the environment is not there to support women participation. And I feel one of the main reasons why it is because 60 to 75% of girls and women in Liberia are uneducated. They are not given opportunity to continue their education. And until women and girls are given opportunity to have access to education like boys and men, women would just not be supported in this space to take up leadership. Thank you so much. So we really appreciate you sharing your key points on how women are getting involved in the political process in Liberia. What advice would you have for any students who are keenly interested in politics, particularly for young women attorneys? And what challenges should they look to overcome? That's a really good question again. My advice to law students specifically may not necessarily be welcome because the truth is the law is not the answer. Well, you know, I have three law degrees and I'm grateful and I appreciate being a legally minded scholar and Black woman who can go back to the continent and use the law to advocate for women's rights. What I've gathered from doing research in Liberia for a law degree, my PhD, is that the law is far reaching. It's over there. People don't especially women in the rural communities, they don't feel connected to the law. The law creates isolation. The law creates a chasm. The law is not accessible. The language used in the law is difficult to communicate to, say, 60-70% of people who are uneducated. And I will imagine, to some extent, it might be the same in the U.S. So my advice to young law students will be, first of all, to remember that the law is not the first and the foremost response to justice. It's a lot of injustice in the law. So going to law school should give you an opportunity to be more critical of the law rather than conforming to what is created. Because the amount of injustice that is associated with what we have come to know as a law it is very much alive in the U.S., of course, with police violence against Black people who never, almost never end up getting justice. So what's the essence of having a law when a white police officer can kill a Black man and never go to prison for it? So my advice would be use it as a tool to educate yourself and don't see it as a panacea or the only way for people that are oppressed 
to access justice. And I would encourage law students to also learn history. I will say this over and again, especially Black law students, to take time to learn about the history. And in context of Liberia, many African-Americans are connected to Liberia. Some are still family members, even though we're separated. Some brought to Liberia, some brought from Africa. We are still connected. And we are all one to take some time to learn about the history. I know the school system doesn't do well to educate Black African-American students about the history of their ancestors. But take time. By the time you get to university law school, you should be able to take time on your own to find out this history for yourselves. So those are my two major advice. Thank you, Dr. Veronica Finn Rui, for joining us on today's episode of Let's Brief It and sharing your thoughts, your insights, and your powerful journey from refugee to renowned doctor. We also appreciate you sharing your thoughts about Liberia and women in politics. To our audience in the DC region and elsewhere, thank you for listening. The DC Bar Law Student Community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in leadership trainings, substantive content programming, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org.